from KPFA Studios in Berkeley. This is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zazan. And I'm Khalil Bendib. The devastating war in Yemen seems to be entering a new stage. A major base in Aden has fallen now to the southerners. Bendagar seems to be holed up inside of a compound, but basically it looks as if the Hadi government um, has basically fallen in Aden, which is the only place inside of Yemen that it's had any real presence for the past couple of years. If that's true, that's a very big development. We speak with Professor Sheila Carapico, Professor of Political Science and International Studies at the University of Richmond, about the latest turn of events in Yemen and the armed clashes in the southern city of Aden. Also this week, feminist queer activist and thriller writer Kate Raphael speaks to us about the second novel in her Palestine mystery series. This one is called Murder Under the Fig Tree. Stay tuned. Dozens of people have been killed and scores have been wounded in clashes in Aden since January 28, when another front was opened in Yemen's ongoing conflict. The fighting broke out between forces of Mansour Hadi, the internationally recognized president of Yemen, and fighters from the armed wing of the Southern Transitional Council, STC, a political movement seeking secession for southern Yemen. The clashes appear to have been triggered by the deployment of the Yemeni army to prevent separatists from entering the city. Yemen expert and political scientist Sheila Karapiko spoke with Vomina's Shahram Aramir about this latest chapter in the ongoing war in Yemen. The Southern Transitional Council asked for the prime minister to be dismissed and had he refused. And essentially the Southern Transitional Council is staging what Hadi at least calls a coup against the government of his uh, prime minister, Ahmed uh, bin Dagger, and the resistance forces, the southern resistance forces, which is the military wing of the Transitional Council, appear to have more or less occupied the city. The latest word uh, is that last night, after bombings by um, the United Arab Emirates, a major base in Aden has fallen now to the southerners. Bindagar seems to be holed up inside of a compound, but basically it looks as if the Hadi government um, has basically fallen in Aden, which is the only place inside of Yemen that it's had any real presence for the past couple of years. If that's true, that's a very big development. Yemen's internationally recognized government moved to Aden in 2015 after Mr. Hadi and his cabinet were forced to flee the capital, Sana'a. Following an armed takeover by the Houthis at the time, the two sides involved in the recent clashes in Aden have been fighting alongside each other against the Houthis and their partners over the past three years. But their alliance always seemed to lack cohesion. What led to this recent armed confrontation between former allies? There are two levels, I think. One is that there's very widespread frustration in Aden and elsewhere in the south Uh, In Aden in particular, I mean, water doesn't run, power is out most of the time, services are at standstill, life is tough. And at the same time, Hadi himself, of course, isn't in Aden, he's in Riyadh, living in presumably some luxury. So, you know, there's widespread sense that this is not actually a government. 
that's providing services, but rather some fat cats sitting safely in Saudi Arabia while the people are suffering. And then, you know, had he already in last April had dismissed uh, the popular governor of Aden, Idris al-Zubaydi, and some others, and then they formed the Southern Transitional Council, and things have been going downhill since then. There were also charges, there were allegations of corruption uh, of Hadi's government. That was one of the, uh, I think, sources of resentment among the uh, Southerners. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, he's, you know, living in what appears to be, I mean, he may may be semi-house arrest, but nonetheless safety and, um, you know, luxury in Saudi Arabia while his country is going to rock and ruin. Uh, Sheila, secessionist sentiments in South Yemen have always been strong, but over the past seven years, they have been eclipsed by the 2011 uprising that brought an end to Ali Abdullah Saleh's 33-year authoritarian rule, as well as the power struggle that ensued. Later in our conversation, we'll probably discuss the history of the Southern Question, but let's talk about Southern Transitional Council the SDC, which was initiated by Mr. Al-Zubaydi, former governor of Aden, as you mentioned, and Hani bin Buraik, a former member of Mr. Hadi's cabinet, after both men were sacked, as you mentioned. What is the makeup of STC and what are its declared objectives? Uh, the Southern Transitional Council has 24 members from throughout what they're now calling, again, South Arabia, mostly from the east, sort of towards the Hadramaut. And they include both former members of the government of the Old People's Democratic Republic of Yemen, which was the socialist government, and the colonial era elite, some of whom are, are kind of old aristocracy. There are three women. They formed in May 2017 something called the Aden Historical Declaration representing the eight southern governorates and um, calling for the eventual establishment of a quote-unquote democratic federal state. So it's kind of uh, setting itself up as a government. They have ministries that they call departments. So they are not asking for separation as such. They're calling for a democratic uh, federal state. Well, I think it is separatist because I think they mean a democratic federal state encompassing the eight governorates, which used to be South Yemen. So they're really asking for autonomy. Yeah. I'm glad you clarified that. Let's delve into this question in order to understand the socio-historical context for what is known as the Southern Question. Could you give us a brief history of the North-South discord in Yemen? You know, historically, I mean, there was always a place called Yemen, but it was never a unified state. And Great Britain carved out colonies and protectorates in these eight southern governorates for more than 100 years. Those governorates gained independence in the late 1960s, late 67, early 68, and eventually became the People's Democratic Republic of Yemen, the only kind of socialist Marxist state in the Arab world. And that was very different from North Yemen, which had a an imamate until uh, the early 60s and later on a series of military uh, governments with no particular ideology. And then in 1990, which is, of course, uh, the same as the year of German unification, the end of the Cold War, uh, the two Yemens unified. And both leaderships, I think, were imagining that they could outwit the other one, that marriage 
um, was not very happy. And four years later, in 1994, the Southerners attempted to, to re-secede, so to speak, to undo the, the Unification Accord. And the North, under Ali Abdullah Saleh, was victorious and restored unity, but also was quite punitive uh, in its treatment of Aden and the rest of the South. So uh, unity has been uneasy at, at best um, pretty much since 1990. There was an actual war between the two, right, in 1994. Right. 1994, um, a civil war. It was only about 90 days. The Southern leadership basically fled. They were, I think, not good leaders. And so, again, unity was restored. But it amounted to, I mean, I sometimes, because I live in Richmond, Virginia, I sometimes refer to the sentiments of the Southerners as viewing the Northerners as Yankees, uh, you know, scallywags and carpetbaggers who came down and claimed the land and mm. fired the civil service and put their own guys in power. And it was an unpleasant kind of semi-occupation for much of the South. There is this movement, Herak. Herak. Yeah, Herak or Southern Movement in Yemen, which aims to restore independence to Southern Yemen. And this movement has been active and fairly strong in South Yemen. They have used the term, as you mentioned, colonial power to describe the Northern domination. And they have this South Arabian identity that has been constructed in negation of Yemeni identity. What can you tell us about this movement? You know, it has its roots in, again, this discontent against the North since uh, the War of 1994. And then, you know, I mean, there was also, of course, kind of complicated because discontent against the Ali Abdullah Saleh regime was mounting in the South and taking on a very specifically Southern identity and and sense of, of disenfranchisement and, and anger. But, you know, there was also a lot of a great deal of popular frustration against Saleh in other parts of the country, in the North as well. But the Iraq, you know, started to gain steam around 2006, 2007 as a kind of mass popular movement. So kind of leaderless or maybe you would say leaderful, um, you know, street demonstrations, youth um, movements. And so it's been calling for some kind of independence or at least autonomy and then during the 2011 uprising, which was the nationwide uh, mass outpouring um, of demands for Saleh to step aside, that's usually in English referred to as part of the Arab Spring, it seemed as though the Southern movement and other forces demanding change, the youth movement more generally, kind of had formed a, a common cause to eliminate President Saleh. But that transition was so incomplete that now, again, in the past few years, the uh, war in Sana'a has continued between Saleh, of course, who was recently um, assassinated, and the Houthis on the one side and the Saudi-led coalition on the other. And the South, really Aden, but the South in general, have kind of had a separate experience for the past two to three years, which is that you know, they're not bothered by the Houthis and Saleh, but on the other hand, they're not well served by the Hadi government. So if anything, separatist sentiments have been increasing as people in the South say, you know, we just don't want any part of this mess that's based in Sana'a. And increasingly, they're fed up with pretending that uh, Hadi is the head of a so-called legitimate government 
which again is is based in Riyadh. What are the nexus between this uh, southern movement, Herak, and the Southern Transitional Council, STC, that we discussed earlier with, with its 24 members steering committee, as you mentioned? I mean, you mentioned something about Herak being a, a movement without unified leadership, structured hierarchy. How is that different from the Southern Transitional Council, STC? Is this a question of uh, building power at the grassroots level versus uh, focusing on capturing the state? Yeah, I mean, I wish I could provide more clarity than I can, because I think there's things are moving very quickly. You have basically, you know, professional politicians in the uh, Southern Transitional Council um, who are doing, you know, I think important work, but they have not necessarily fully established themselves as the leaders for the Herat, who tend to be much younger, kind of more impetuous. So I think there's a lot of, you know, negotiations and meetings and just political organizing going on right now, again, as things are moving very quickly. And then there's also the question of the role of the Emiratis, who seem to be supporting the Southern Transitional Council and its military wing. But that's also a, an issue. Talking about the Emiratis, in March 2015, a Saudi-led military coalition entered the war in Yemen in support of Mr. Hadi, as you mentioned, after his government was ousted by the Houthi rebels. As part of the Saudi-led coalition, the United Arab Emirates has sent a large number of ground forces to Yemen. In the recent clashes between Mr. Hadi forces and the armed wing of the STC, the UAE appears, as you mentioned, to be supporting the STC and the southern forces. Does this signal a rift between the Saudis and the UAE? And if so, what are the bones of contention? It does seem to signal a significant rift. And in particular, it seems to signal that the United Arab Emirates are pursuing their own policies, specifically in the southern governorates, independent of the Saudi policy. The UAE appear to have basically withdrawn their support for the Hadi government, which increasingly just looks like a Saudi puppet government. The United Arab Emirates also have actual troops on the ground, which the Saudis don't. Um, and so there have been at least some casualties among Emirati forces. Also, the Emiratis are kind of actively engaged in investment activities in uh, South Yemen and off uh, the coast uh, in the island of Socotra. So it appears that the Emiratis are carving out their own foreign policy independent of the Saudi coalition and pursuing their own interests rather than the interests of the coalition. Uh, the UAE has been financing and training armed groups that only answer to it. And according to Human Rights Watch, the UAE has been setting up detention centers and creating a security establishment parallel to Hadi's government. Last year, Mr. Hadi was reported to have said that UAE is behaving, and this is quote from the report, like an occupation power in Yemen rather than a force of liberation, unquote. Talk a little more about the UAE's interests in Yemen. Perhaps they go beyond Yemen and they're more regional. And, and what explains its support for SDC and Mr. Al-Zubaydi, former governor of Aden? The UAE has a number of interests. One is their oil has to go by ship through the Straits of Hormuz. Their oil is at least potentially vulnerable to a closure of the Straits of Hormuz by um, 
uh, Iran. So they could use an overland outlet to the Arabian Sea, which would then get them to the Indian Ocean and international waters. And, and Saudis have similar concerns. Saudis have similar concerns, but Saudis can also, can at least theoretically, at least go through uh, the Red Sea. But the Saudis do have similar concerns. Um, Dubai has also, Dubai the port has been in competition with Aden port. I mean, Aden is potentially a better port in terms of its geographic location than Dubai, although, of course, Dubai is way, way, way more modern. But I think Dubai Ports World wants to either be able to compete with Aden or to control Aden through investments, and it does indeed have investments in Aden. So those are two sides of an economic oil-based set of incentives. There's reason to think that otherwise also the Emiratis see investment potential of various kinds in Aden and the rest of the South. And then there's also a kind of strategic logic of countering Saudi hegemony. People frequently write about both the Emiratis and Qatar, which I'm not going to discuss too much in this, a kind of punching above their weight and attempting to counter Saudi hegemony. The Saudis clearly think that they should be running the entire peninsula. But, you know, the Emiratis have some concerns and clout of their own, and they're exercising it and looking to advance their own interest in southern Yemen. As an example of that, the UAE didn't have its own game in Libya in supporting the groups that they picked. So what about this question of Ikhwan Muslim Muslim Brotherhood in Yemen? How does that play out, given the fact that Mr. Hadi's main ally, the Islah Party, is a Muslim Brotherhood party, isn't he? You know, it is and it isn't. I mean, in other words, parts of Islah are brotherhood or the brotherhood as it existed, which wasn't really as a party inside of Yemen, was kind of subsumed within al-Islah. But al-Islah itself is not a Muslim Brotherhood. So you kind of need to look more down into the weeds of which factions for many decades there's been a history of various Gulf governments and also individuals financing politicians inside of Yemen. So within al-Islah, I mean, there are brotherhood elements, but there are also elements that are much closer to Salafis and al-Qaeda. And so there have been various efforts by Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, the Emiratis and Qatar in particular, and then individuals inside of those governments to patronize individuals within al-Islah party to ensure that they have a role first in the uh, administration of Ali Abdullah Saleh and then more recently of Abdurrahman Mansur Hadi. So those are almost like campaign financing questions and they're pretty hard to trace. What about the issue of war in Yemen? Are the Saudis and the UAE... Are they kind of on the same page in terms of whether this is the time to end this war, for it to subside? Our sense is that right now there's a real turning point because it looks as if the Hadi government has just lost its last foothold inside of Yemen. And I don't know for how long uh, even the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia can continue to refer to the Hadi government as the legitimate government when they don't have a presence or the ability to govern or to deliver services pretty much anywhere inside. I mean, there are some pockets where they can, but they are not the places where the people live. This is kind of a game changer, 
I think. This comes in the wake of Mr. Saleh's death, which happened in December. You would think that it would weaken the opposition, which is the Houthis and their partners. There was a split. What appeared to have happened was that the Saudis convinced Saleh, who had been, you know, their guy for many, many, many years. They had convinced him to split with the Houthis and have a rapprochement with the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And he basically gave a speech announcing that. And a couple of days later, he was assassinated by the Houthis. So that put his party in disarray. And now we have a split also on the other side between Hadi and the Southern Movement. So what was being seen somewhat inaccurately for a long time is two sides in what outsiders like to think of as some sort of sectarian conflict, which was always a misleading gambit. But I mean, both sides have split decisively. So Saleh and the Houthis have completely split. And now Hadi and Iraq or the Southern Movement have completely split. The Saudis have been spending, by some accounts, over $65 million a day on this war in Yemen for the last three years. And Yemen has been described as the underbelly of Saudi Arabia by some. And it's no secret that the Saudi leadership for decades has generally tried to create a weak Yemen. So what is the Saudis' endgame in Yemen right now, given the fact that, if I'm reading this correctly, UAE is trying to split Yemen, basically creating a, two countries, one in the south, one in the north. Wouldn't that address some of Saudi's concerns? I guess not, because the Houthis are still on their borders. I think everyone is saying the crown prince, bin Salman, just misestimated what it would take to restore the Hadi government to power in Yemen, and they have failed to do so, and things are going from bad to worse inside of Yemen, which we haven't even used the word humanitarian catastrophe, which of course there is, but it's also pretty catastrophic for Saudi Arabia. I mean, it's humiliating. You know, the word quagmire is clearly warranted in this situation. It's very difficult to imagine what kind of strategic vision Saudi Arabia can salvage from this quagmire at this point. Their military mission has failed so abysmally it's hard to imagine what they're going to try to do next. Sheila, going back to the UAE's role, you mentioned something about the island of Sokotra in the Indian Ocean. The island is a unique natural habitat, and UNESCO recognized the almost untouched island as a World Heritage Site in 2008 for its unique plant life. Evidently, 307 out of 825 plant species in Sokotra are found nowhere else on the Earth. There are unconfirmed reports that UAE has been granted a 99-year lease for the island. There is a very strange arrangement. looks like UAE has a military camp on the island, and UAE-based hotels have reserved large areas on the beaches and erected fences for future hotel development. There are also reports that land has been offered to UAE citizens who have participated in so-called investment tours to the island. What is UAE doing there? Socotra has been called, I think, the Galapagos of the East or something like that. I mean, it is a unique natural habitat without very many indigenous inhabitants. And the UAE appears to be trying to develop it for military as well as commercial and tourism purposes. I wonder, actually, though, it seems as if whatever agreements were made to grant them leases and land and so forth, 
would have come from the Hadi government. The status of those agreements would now be uncertain. Of course, on the other hand, it may be that the UAE is actually more or less in military control. Very unlikely, for example, that the Hadi government is in military control. The unfortunate part here, of course, is that it's a very fragile environment. And the military presence in particular with, you know, the pollutants and damages that are done by fighter jets and... Uh, Even these future developments, they yeah, could have yeah, detrimental impact. Yeah, all very well threaten the natural environment. Can you remind us what the role of the United States is in Yemen today? What is the U.S. policy? Is, is it clear? Until uh, today, it has been clear that the United States unabashedly and without any reservations, well, with only occasional lip service to reservations, backs whatever the Saudi government wants in Yemen. And it has done so diplomatically by providing weapons. Intelligence. Intelligence, in-air refueling. Uh, So, you know, the United States is a party to uh, the Saudi uh, military campaign in Yemen. And then in addition, of course, the United States continues its own drone war against al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, which, of course, is also a contradictory policy since the Houthis were fighting al-Qaeda and uh, the Saudis were fighting the Houthis. So the United States, a little bit fighting both sides in the war. But, you know, I think the time has come now. And there are members of Congress who have called for a review of American policy of arming and supporting the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and pretending to recognize the so-called legitimate government of of uh, Hadi in Riyadh. I do hope that somebody in Washington is paying attention and recognizes that it's high time to um, think through this policy a little bit more carefully. And just to be clear, many analysts believe that the Saudi-led coalition would be grounded if Washington withheld its support. Well, yeah, I mean, they, they can't fly their sorties without American support. And they certainly, right now, of course, they have enough, enough weapons to keep it up for quite a while. But they wouldn't be able to continue a war indefinitely without American and also, you know, British and and other uh, NATO allied uh, weapons. I mean, that's where the weapons come from. In a report released just a few weeks ago by the UN Children's Agency, UNICEF, the report indicated that since Saudi-led coalition intervened on March 15, 2015, the war in Yemen has killed and injured more than 5,000 children and left another 400,000 severely malnourished and fighting for their lives. The report added nearly 2 million Yemeni children were out of school and more than 11 million children, or nearly every child in Yemen, were in need of humanitarian assistance. And there was concern about more than 3 million children who were born into this war, and these children are going to be permanently scarred by the years of violence. An entire generation of children in Yemen is growing up knowing nothing but violence. What do you think of this war in Yemen? Where do you think it's heading? Do you see an end to this tragedy in the foreseeable future? You know, this has been going on since um, March 2015. And for more than a year, it has been estimated that a Yemeni child under five dies of preventable causes every 10 minutes, all day, every day. Yes. It's a a catastrophe of of incredible proportions. And in a war completely unprovoked, Yemen did not attack Saudi Arabia or 
anything of the sort to warrant this level of punishment. You know, we can only hope now all the optimism has been drained out of me and most other people that I know, although, you know, there are some youth activists, young people in lots of places in Yemen who, uh, you know, especially the kind of, you know, the millennials trying to look forward to something better and, and hope for something better. But at the moment, I'm, I'm kind of hopeful that uh, this kind of last, what looks like defeat of uh, the Hadi government will actually, you know, force um, the United States, even the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, the United Nations, somebody to press the reset button and stop the war. Perhaps, you know, as you have indicated in your work, there is this civil society in Yemen, especially in the southern part of Yemen. There is indeed. That's what I'm referring to as, yeah, it's in the south, it's in it's in Aden, it's in the other major cities, including Sana'a and Taiz and elsewhere, um, you know, where there are artists. And, you know, a lot of it, of course, now has gone into things like community defense and uh, medical relief and feeding stations and charitable organizations. But, um, you know, there are research groups and polling groups and Yemen Data Project and journalists. And, you know, there are people um, thinking about the next generation, about these poor children growing up in this horrible situation and, you know, again, hoping for something better. Not to give your audience just hopelessly depressed. The one thing I suppose that could be noted is that the worst circumstances now, mostly in the major cities, uh, so Aden right now, Taiz, which has been horrible, Sana'a, and, and there are some also other areas where the fighting has been really bad and the displacement, which there's also mass displacement, internal displacement, of course. But a, a lot of people have been able to, to go out into the countryside where there's not much food, but on the other hand, uh, there's not much gunfire either. And, you know, those are pockets of probably some safety and, and security for some children. Sheila Carapico is a professor of political science and international studies at the University of Richmond and the editor of the new book, Arabia Incognita. Dispatches from Yemen and the Gulf. For more information, please visit jadmagazine.com. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can always reach us via our website at vomena.org slash blog or send us an email at info at vomina.org. You can friend us on our Facebook or find us on Twitter at twitter.com slash vomina underscore radio.
Under the Fig Tree, a Palestine mystery, is the second mystery novel in a series by local writer and activist Kate Raphael. In it, she weaves a fascinating yarn observing life under occupation and the evolving sexual mores in Palestine. She spoke with Khalil Bendib about her work and why she decided to write a murder mystery about Palestine. Kate, uh, I've known you for many years now as a fellow programmer at KPFA. I've been impressed with your peace and justice activism as well, uh, which has taken you to places like Palestine and gotten you in prison at the hands of the Israeli occupier. <laughs> but I've only recently finally had the opportunity to discover another facet of your work, and this is your work as a novelist. And I must confess that I'm really, really impressed, but I had no idea how gifted a storyteller you were until I picked up a copy of your new book, Murder Under the Fig Tree. Congratulations on this, the second of a series of detective stories in Palestine. Thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Before I go any further, what genre or subgenre would you say this fast-paced story really fits in, if it does any? I mean, I, I'm like you. I don't necessarily like to classify things, but... As a fellow author, I'm, you know, I know that they like to. Fortunately, international mystery or global mystery is sort of considered a genre, subgenre in itself, which is good because I definitely don't think of these as police procedurals, even though there is a Palestinian policewoman who's one of the protagonists, because honestly, I did not do a ton of research into how Palestinian police operate. And so I wouldn't want anybody to take this as a how to be a police person in <laughs> Palestine. The one thing I can say is that they're definitely not cozy mysteries. Cozies are a very popular subgenre that are especially popular with women and have amateur sleuths usually, like Miss Marple is kind of the classic, or Hercule Poirot, and often have some kind of crafts or animals involved. And when I started, I kind of thought I was writing a cozy because they also don't have a lot of gore, and I don't like a lot of gore. I didn't think of myself as a hard-boiled mystery writer, but I later found out that cozies cannot have sex. Ah, and, and you so don't write lesbian mysteries and not have sex. <laughs> okay. So therefore, I am out of the cozy subgenre for sure. One of the things I like about a good detective story, detective fiction, is that more often than not, when it's done well, beyond the plot itself, 
which is a perfect vehicle to drive a reader to keep turning the pages, it manages to depict an entire world the way an anthropologist might, except much more entertaining. And your book does that very well, in my opinion. You might as well have titled it Occupation 101, except that nobody would pick it up if you had. You managed to impart an awful lot of information without lecturing or becoming too didactic. And I'm impressed how naturally you're able to do that. How do you do that? Well, I wish I could say I did it naturally. I don't know that I did. But when I came back from Palestine, I came back with a thousand pages of journals, some of which had been written during my time in immigration prison, and some of which while I was witnessing human rights violations in Palestine. And my friends would say, oh, you should really compile these into a book. And I thought, oh, yes, I really should. And I also thought, and no one will read it. So I tried to think, well, what could I write that people who are not interested specifically in Palestine, because there are already great nonfiction works about Palestine out there. Everything from Anna Baltzer's Witness in Palestine, which is very much like the kind of book I would write, or Pamela Olson's Fast Times in Palestine, which are from the perspective of internationals. And then there are, of course, also books like I Saw Ramallah and Sharon and My Mother-in-Law, which are written by Palestinians, which I would way rather people read if they're going to read a memoir. So I thought of this story. I actually glimpsed a scene as I was traveling in Palestine one night, and I thought it was a little bit unclear what was going on. And I thought, oh, this would be a great way for a mystery to start. I like the genre. I read mysteries. I read a few while I was in Palestine, while I was stuck at checkpoints or waiting to visit people in prison. So I had that on the brain. And I just thought, yeah, it might reach a new audience. And maybe to a lesser extent than I might have dreamed, but to a certain extent, that is definitely happening. I imagine that you must have read quite a few of these mysteries to be able to write one. I don't know how much you'd have to really absorb. I read stuff like that when I was a kid. I read a lot of it, but I would never be able to write a story just because I read so many. It definitely took some trial and error on my part. My first draft, I have to say, I'm so grateful to the people who were my early readers for my first book because it wasn't that well told and it was way too didactic and also had way too many characters and too much Arabic and all sorts of other things that, you know, I really didn't know how to do it. I had read a lot of mysteries, but I didn't have a good sense of how you balance plot and characters and the internal character arcs of your characters versus what I think of as the arc of history or the arc of the Palestine story. People told me, oh, this is way too much information or the way that you're telling this took me out of the story, so you need to weave it in. And fortunately, I had some great coaches and editors and friends and critique partners to help me with that. But writing this second one, it was a more natural process because I did know the characters already. Mm. So I could sort of put myself into a situation and think, okay, if I were Chloe or if I were Rania, what would I do in that situation? And I mean, that's the joy of writing mysteries once you convince yourself to do it is that 
you get to know your characters and they sort of take over. And I mean, the best minutes are those when you find the character doing something that's very much in character for them, but not anything that I had planned. And I sort of go, oh, that's interesting. Let's see where that goes. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, that was my next question. Do you have the ability or the propensity to actually write the whole plot at first and then go into it? Or do you let a little bit your characters take you places? Or is it a combination of both? It's definitely a combination. Mystery writers tend to fall into one of two categories. There are people who write by the seat of their pants. That is, they just sit there and write it. They call themselves pantsers. And there are dedicated outliners who sit down and plot everything out before they start. I learned recently to call myself a planster because, or a planter, because I do a little of both. I try to get the story written as quickly as I can because I'm always afraid that I'll get stuck. The first mystery I ever tried to write, which was many years ago, before I ever went to Palestine, I got about halfway through and just realized I didn't quite have the story. I'm always worried about that happening, so I want to get to the end and know that I have a viable killer and there's sort of enough plot twists that I can create red herrings and have clues and all of those things. So I try to get it done really fast and then go back and fill it in. But it tends not to go that way as easily as I think. I'll go off on tangents or I'll get a scene and so I'll want to write that down and that sometimes leads to another scene so then I just end up with a big mess. But Mm. at least I do have an outline. I just actually in November wrote the first draft of the third book in this series, Murder at the Roadblock, and I was saying when I was done, well, it's a very shaky and leaning frame, but at least it's a frame. Mm. How long did you stay in Palestine? I was there all told for about 18 months, including the six weeks I spent in prison, but it was over a period of about three years, so I was going and coming during that time. The overlap between human rights in general and LGBT rights in particular seems to have made many in the queer community quite interested in the cause of Palestine. And this is depicted in your book. In your book, Murder Under the Fig Tree, one of the two main protagonists, Chloe, happens to be both a passionate anti-occupation activist and a lesbian. Would you say that LGBT people are well-represented or even overrepresented in the struggle for Palestinian rights, or is that just an exaggeration? You know, it's funny. Back in 2002, when I first went on the International Solidarity Movement, campaign, we discussed that because there were quite a few queers who were on that delegation. So we were like, you know, is it just our imagination or are we overrepresented here? I think for sure, you know, queers have for a long time tended to be progressive, be part of progressive movements because of our own experience of oppression here and also because the LGBT movement grew out of the civil rights movement, the women's movement, the anti-war movements of the 60s. It was very much a product of that time, as well as, you know, Harry Hay, who a lot of people call the sort of father of the modern gay movement actually came out of the Communist Party of the United States. I mean, there's always been an affinity between queers and the left. And even though now we have this mainstream gay rights movement that doesn't look very progressive a lot of the time, 
like many movements in many parts of the U.S., I would say the leadership doesn't necessarily represent the grassroots. So I do think there's becoming an affinity with Palestine, although it's not easy because especially among donors to things like LGBT centers, there are some very influential Zionist voices like Michael Lucas, who's this pornographer who is also... I think he's a dual citizen with Israel, originally from Russia, and very, I mean, he's a rabid Zionist. He makes these porn movies, Men of Israel or something, some of which are shot in destroyed villages. He's basically an occupation pornographer, and he gives a lot of money to the LGBT Center and other institutions in New York and has pressured them not to allow, I mean, at one point they refused to let Queers Against Israeli Apartheid have a meeting at the LGBT Center in New York because Michael Lucas threatened to withhold Mm -hmm. funding. And we here have struggled for many years with Frameline, the LGBT film festival, to stop taking money from the Israeli consulate. So it's a very difficult and complex relationship. And gay rights are routinely highlighted by Israeli propaganda to shine a positive light on Zionism and contrast Israel for its tolerance of sexual rights with Palestine's more, perhaps less tolerant, sexual mores. As someone who is both pro-Palestinian and a lesbian activist, how do you counter that narrative? Yeah, I mean, it's something that I was very thoughtful about when I was writing this book because unlike my first book where Chloe's sexuality is really not a big focus of the story, although it's there, and she has this relationship, and they have to be careful. This book is really dealing with that issue of the sort of emerging gay underground in Palestine and queer voices in Palestine becoming more part of the fabric of Palestinian civil society. And I didn't want to romanticize it. I didn't want to present it as rosier than it is, but I also definitely didn't want to write something that could be used for what we call pinkwashing for, you know, this project that you mentioned of Israel promoting itself as this gay haven for persecuted Arab gay people, especially because it's not. I mean, I think every Palestinian who's actually applied for asylum in Israel has been denied. I've tried to represent the spectrum of experience. I mean, of course, I didn't represent all gay and trans experience in Palestine, but I tried to represent the range of opinions and perspectives that I've encountered and that I think exist in most societies. Palestine, for sure, I mean, it's a Muslim country. It identifies itself as a Muslim country, although it's not an Islamist country. I mean, insofar as it's a country, it's not it's not a theocracy. It doesn't have a religious government. And there's there are minority Christians. rights. Right, there's right. there's Christian population. There's a small Sumerian population, which are Jews. And they have equal rights. But it definitely has conservative values kind of baked into the culture, as ours certainly does too. But it's definitely at an earlier stage of 
that being confronted on a daily basis. I mean, that said, I do want to say that, for instance, Rauda Morcos, who was really the first openly queer Palestinian in Palestine to become known, tells the story that when she came out, it was to an Israeli newspaper, like a Hebrew Israeli newspaper, and she convinced herself that no one in her village would read it. Mm. She's from a Palestinian village inside Israel in the Galilee. And she came out to this Hebrew language newspaper telling herself that people in her village wouldn't be reading that newspaper. Of course, it was all over town by noon. Her mother (laughs) called her and said, don't come home for two weeks. Mm -hmm. And after two weeks, she went home and she's lived there ever since. And she said, in many ways, it's easier now because the guys that used to come on to her now understand why she isn't interested. And I was like, two weeks? I mean, I know people who can't go back to Stockton who've been out for 30 years. I think in some ways, it's a very tight-knit society. And for sure, there are families that would reject somebody. But I feel like that happens in some ways less from what I've heard than it does here. Because here, families just in general are less cohesive and people are maybe more likely to move 4,000 miles away from their family like I did and go back once a year or less. There, I mean, it's such a small country and so much revolves around the family that issues have to get resolved. And I think a lot of the time they do. So I tried to represent that as best I could. And knowing that I would do it incompletely and probably not well some of the time. Yeah, and it's not a simple situation. I grew up in Algeria, and I saw some overtly gay people, some of them famous poets, artists, and there was a generally negative view of gays. You kind of ridiculed them and all that. But at the same time, it wasn't this what we hear about today in certain countries in the Arab world where it's a death sentence, or you're really ostracized. They were not. They were just part of the community. They're considered strange. But there wasn't this intolerance we hear about these days. So it varies from country to country. And from time to time, it may be worse today in Algeria than it was when I was growing up because of this whole Wahhabi climate and all that. I mean, it might, although there was that movie, I can't remember the name of it, but it won at Cannes a couple of years ago, and it was lesbian, and it was an official Algerian submission. And then you have, yeah. So my impression is that in many Arab countries, not in Saudi Arabia, but as in most Christian countries, but not all of them, there is a space. And that space is becoming wider through the work and courage of queer activists in those countries who make their compromises and sort of find their path. And just as people have done throughout the world, people are struggling with their own societies in the ways that make sense to them. Yeah, to come back to the book, you write scenes of real cruelty sometimes, you know, which reflect reality, in which the Israeli security forces act with shocking brutality towards Palestinian civilians. 
As a keen observer of the occupation of Palestine, how do you explain that rage, the kind of rage that you've witnessed? If you steal something that you know you don't have a right to, <laughs> then you're... And you're challenged. You're never going to feel secure mm. in the possession of that, and that makes you angry at the people that you stole from because they're the ones who know remind you of the constantly. truth about what you've done. Mm. And I really feel like that is at the root of a lot of it. I mean, the other thing is just when you take... And I feel like this whole sexual harassment, truth-telling moment that we're in here really demonstrates that when you take testosterone-laced men and give them vast amounts of power over other human beings, they tend to act very badly. I mean, most, not all, but most of the people in my book who act really badly are men, and that was most of what I witnessed. So... I could definitely see it, guys, that they weren't bad people inherently, but if they were having a bad day, they had all this power, and so they would just use it to make themselves feel better. Some of your sexual content, I imagine, must lose you some in the more conservative Arab-Palestinian community as potential readers. So you lose some of the readers for the sexual content and others because of the <laughs> politics. Ultimately, other than being true to yourself and telling wonderful stories, who is your audience and who do you write for? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, who's my audience going to be? You know, I just hope that there's an audience that, first of all, I think many more people like to read graphic sex than will admit it. Mm. So that's part of it is that I assume that there are some people who will read it who might not tell anybody that they read it. But I also, certainly I'm writing for an American audience primarily and definitely an LGBT audience is part of who I'm hoping to reach. And I definitely think that there are people who will read my books even though they don't agree with the politics even if it's to prove that I'm wrong somehow, to see what I'm saying so they can argue and complain about it. But, for instance, my brother-in-law, he's a Zionist, but he likes my books. Yeah, so that's the magic of fiction. It's, it's not a lecture you're proposing here. You're just telling a story. And if you're good enough, you'll grab people by just the magic of the storytelling itself. That's my hope. Hmm. And obviously, yeah, that's what you aim for. I'm hoping and I have found that a surprising number of people don't know anything about Palestine. They don't read the news carefully. And when they're reading the news, they don't gravitate towards stories about that part of the world because they're not interested in it. And so the bigger problem that I've had in terms of when I read or whatever encounter general audiences is people thinking that I'm talking about Pakistan. <laughs> so, so, you know, I'm hoping that there's a big enough audience that just will hear that, hey, this is a interesting book about a place that I've never heard of and read it with no preconceptions at all. <laughs> Thank you.
Kate Raphael is a Bay Area writer, feminist, queer activist, and producer of the weekly radio show Women's Magazine on Pacifica's KPFA, which is heard throughout Northern and Central California every Monday from 1 to 2 p.m. She spoke with Khalil Bendib about her second and latest mystery novel, Murder Under the Fig Tree. Kate will be speaking about her work on February 8th from 6.30 to 7.30 p.m. at the San Francisco Public Library located at 100 Larkin Street in San Francisco. For more information, you may call 415-557-4595. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. That's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. To get in touch, you can call us at 510-848-6767, extension 632, email vomekpfa at yahoo.com. Connect with us on our Facebook at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa or follow us on Vomina Radio. Please join us next time for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.